For this episode, we've partnered with Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Did you know that 95% of women who take prenatals are still nutrient deficient? Most prenatals are designed to meet bare minimum needs, not to optimally nourish you. We love that Needed's products are based on the latest clinical research and that they focus on care before, during, and after pregnancy. Get optimal nutrition and save 20% off your first month at thisisneeded.com with code FDU. You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm, a jo- I'm joined by my charming, congenial, and clever co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. How are you guys doing? We are I love good. your adjective choice today. Well, I specifically looked those up because I wanted to use some clever, cordial, and charming words. So... <laughs> I feel like the next time I host, I'm going to go to the thesaurus and I'm going to put in words like that. And then I'm going to come up with the most obscure adjectives I can possibly come up with. They won't even think know. about Wordle. Do y'all do Wordle? Oh, yes. No, but I have friends that do it. Literally, I'm on a Wordle group every day. I know what all of my sorority sisters are doing on Wordle, but I'm kind of, I'm not on Wordle. Our family does Wordle and I love it. Like it's this, it's neat everywhere from like my kids to my mom. And so I'm like, you know, and we all kind of compete against each other. It's, it's fun. See, that's what my sorority sisters do. They show their like Wordle thing without the word in it to show how quickly they got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I always, I always kind of feel like I'd just be a loser at it. So I kind of just it intimidates me, so I don't do it. Do you do Wordle, Carrie? So we're a little obsessive. My husband, my one of our friends and I, we do Wordle. We do Quirtle. Uh, we do Quirtle Sequence. We do Octurtle, Octurtle Sequence, and Octurtle Rescue. I don't know what, what these other things stuff? are. You got to share with no us. what that stuff is. So you yeah. know how Wordle is just that one word that you're trying to figure out with an X amount of guesses? Yeah. So Octurtle is that times eight. So you've got eight words running... Can, at the same time, but you're using the same grid for all of them. And oh then, and so Quirtle is four, Octurtle is eight. And then you've got the sequences where you've got, so four different, for example, Quirtle sequence is those four different windows and you guess the first word and then it pushes you over to the second word. And so you have however many remaining guesses to get that one plus the third one plus the fourth one. Oh, so you're guessing on four words with just five guesses? No, it's not five guesses. You get more than that. Oh, you thank goodness. Like Quirtle, I think you get eight or nine. Um, Octurtle, you get, I think, 13, something like that. Like you get more, even though you have eight, eight words, you have like 13, 14 guesses to figure it out. And so if you are looking for a time suck. Like I look forward to this every day. When I I hit like a boiling point in my day and I'm pissed about whatever, I will go like, okay, I'm just going to do it. Surely that never happens. Does that really happen that often in your day, Carrie? Oh, no, never. I am am a model of patience and virtue all the time. As as you would expect from someone yeah, from Las absolutely. Vegas compared to Texas or Tennessee, <laughs> I am. Oh, I, I, I fair I, share over here too. 
virginal thoughts, and I never think of any four-letter words, and I certainly <laughs> never mention them. Hopefully, to any you patient. think of five-letter words if you're doing Wordle, right? It's not four-letter <laughs> words. <laughs> four-letter words, plurals. How about that? There you go. Yeah. Well, so today we're going to talk about cyst, and so um, can we do we, a couple questions first? Oh yeah, a couple oh, questions. Yeah. Let's do a couple listener oh, questions. Oh yeah, I'm out of the, I'm out of a habit of that. Yep, yep. Here's here's our first one. Your podcast is a blessing. Thank you. I'm 35, husband is 44, AMH of 1.2, trying to conceive for 14 months. Everything looks okay for me, except I'm concerned that my lining is thin due to lighter periods, historical continuous use of the pill, and my ultrasound showing only a five millimeter thickness the day before ovulation. My husband had a semen analysis showing low sperm volume, resulting in lower count. His motility was normal. Fertility doctor recommended IUI with Clomid to start. I'm concerned Clomid may be bad for my thin lining. Would you recommend doing the IUI with Letrozole instead of Clomid? Is there any benefit to Clomid over Letrozole in these circumstances? That's a great question. That is. Yeah, I wouldn't. I would not do Clomid. I think she's really onto something. Uh, it's hard to know if Femora would be a whole lot better, but it's sort of like Clomid's going to be worse probably because Clomid binds to receptors in the endometrium and it really covers up estrogen receptors and just covers them up. And so that when your body produces estrogen, your lining doesn't really respond. And there's a certain percentage of people who have normal linings. And when they take Clomid, they get really thin linings. So, you know, you may do fine with it. You may not be one of those people that have a problem, but if it were, if you were my patient, I would put you on Femora for sure letrozole just to see if it will help your lining a little bit. And sometimes too, I'll even prime people for a month or two. Maybe it's just, I don't know if it really helps that much, but for some people, it does seem to help thicken their lining up a little bit. Yeah, I kind of wonder why your lining is thin. Sometimes it's just idiopathic, meaning we don't really know why it's that way. But sometimes it can be from like having DNCs and things like that. But I would agree a five millimeter lining at the time of ovulation is a pretty thin lining. And, you know, you may even want to just do a little estrogen for a couple of months ahead to see if you can fluff your lining up a little bit and hopefully keep it keep it going with your femora sometimes um, sometimes you can even add estrogen you know after you finish the femora if you've got a little bit of time between the time that you're you know you're getting your ultrasound and when you're actually going to get triggered and also know that that actual number of the lining doesn't always you know that doesn't actually have as much meaning as I think sometimes we put on it. Um, mm -hmm. There's pretty good studies that say that our, our hangups yeah. and lining are, are relatively unfounded. So I think the important thing is where are you starting? I mean, are you starting off with the two millimeter stripe and you're ending up with a five millimeter stripe? Is it a beautiful, I mean, I've seen some of the prettiest trilaminar stripes at five millimeter, five or yeah. six millimeters. And I'm like, wow, I wish that like 10 millimeter one I just saw looked like that. <laughs> so you know, it, it is something to kind of, yes, you need to pay attention to it. Yes, I totally agree. Clomid is probably not the best option in mm -hmm. your circumstance. Um, but I, I think that also take your lining with a grain of salt. And I heard a little murmur in there that maybe birth control pills contributed to this. Probably not. Um, mm -hmm. And and there's also the thought of, okay, maybe it's that the eggs are just not producing a whole lot of estrogen. And that we sometimes see as eggs are not as functional as we might hope them to be, oftentimes a function of age, but sometimes a function of, did you get chemotherapy? Do you have some other insult to your ovaries? Um, and so there's other stuff that can play into that as well as just whether or not you're using Clomid versus Femara or Letrozole. And this is completely incidental, but I tend to see the people who have the hardest problems with lining are really tall, thin women. Um, yeah. There, there are other people yeah. who have this problem, but if I had to like pick someone out of a crowd, mm -hmm. if yeah. you are 
tall and thin that that it kind of in some ways sometimes predisposes you probably just because you have less fat tissue within your own body yeah leading to that hypothalamic side i agree with Mm -hmm. you yeah yeah exactly Exactly. All right, let's do one more. My husband and I were diagnosed with infertility um, back in 2021. I have DOR AMH of 0.44. My husband has low sperm count, currently 38 years old. I've gone through six stem cycles using both agonist and antagonist protocols with Omnitrope. Out of the six cycles, we were able to get only one PGT normal embryo 5AA which we transferred, but unfortunately lost at miscarriage at eight weeks. Each stem Mm -hmm. cycle we have achieved retrieved two to 14 mature eggs with good fertilization rates, but poor embryo development. We are feeling defeated and don't know if we should keep trying or move on to an egg donor. We will be trying one more IVF cycle with letrozole and clomid in hopes of getting better quality eggs. Any other protocols that are preferred for poor responders? Thoughts? She didn't say, but the microdose lupron flare protocol, probably up until about eight years ago, was sort of a protocol as the first protocol we go with with women who have decreased ovarian reserve. And, you know, I've noticed in some patients, I mean, sometimes it doesn't make a difference which protocol you use with some patients that have decreased ovarian reserve. But every now and then, there is a difference between using an agonist cycle and doing microdose lupron flare. So, if they have not tried a microdose lupron flare, and that's essentially using a different concentration of lupron. We use lupron for lots of different things. We use it for endometriosis. We use it sometimes for um, FET cycles. Sometimes we use it for regular lupron cycles. But this is a special formulation. And essentially, you take it over the course of the first five days of your cycle and you overlap it with FSH. And it really makes you secrete your own FSH. It sort of gives your ovary kind of a one-two punch. You produce your own endogenous FSH. And then we give you a lot of FSH on top of that. And sometimes it really will make a difference for some patients. So I would consider that protocol if you've not done that as of yet. I like the microdose flares. I also, um, based on a different study that we're doing right now, have actually anecdotally, because I don't have data for this just yet because it's too early, but anecdotally, it seems like when people are on Clomid for a couple of weeks and then we start stimming them with gonadotropins, we get higher egg counts. And... I don't really know why. I don't have data to show. Mm -hmm. Is this, I'm just seeing it because I'm looking super hard at these patients or what? But um, I have one patient in particular that I can think of who she went through three, four cycles at other centers, came here. We tried our low dose protocol and I'll be dipped in donuts if we're not getting better egg numbers from her. Um, And so I don't know. We'll see. We've got a long way to go before we get that data in any kind of polishable state, but you never know. So another thing to think about, and this is going to have to be a conversation between you and your your reproductive endocrinologist and potentially the embryologist is, you know, you've said that your numbers that you've retrieved have sometimes been good, sometimes not as good, but really you've seen issues in embryo development and asking if there are any other media choices um, that your lab might do in, in different circumstances. I know, you know, sometimes there are certain medias that may work better in certain situations or that embryologists feel comfortable with. Um, so that is something to think about, kind of a little bit off the beaten path, but, you know, you've already done six cycles. So um, kind of thinking more outside of the box. Very cool. Oh, all right. Good good questions. So today we're going to talk about ovarian cysts. And I think we see patients a lot of times who kind of confuse normal cyst with abnormal cyst. And technically every month, if you're doing, if your body's doing what we want you to do, you're producing a cyst every month. So tell us, Susan, about that kind of cyst. Okay. So this is kind of like one of my favorite topics in the whole wide world. <laughs> 
And, and first of all, I'm going to introduce a different word for us to use. And we're going to use follicle as something that's supposed to be there. And we're going to talk about cysts as something that's not supposed to be there. So what should happen during the menstrual cycle is at the very beginning, when you start your period, your ovaries should be very quiet. You should have little bitty, tiny follicles. You may only have two or three. You may have 40. It just depends. Okay. But they should all be small at that point. And what happens is the brain sends a chemical called FSH, which we've talked about many times, to the ovary. And that signals for one, ideally, (laughs) follicle to grow. A follicle is one of those little fluid-filled sacs that contains your egg. And one of them gets the signal to grow. And when we're starting off, they're probably around two to five millimeters, and they're eventually going to grow to about 20 millimeters, okay? And as that happens, um, it's going to start producing these little cells within the follicle called granulosa cells, and that produces estrogen. Well, estrogen feeds back to the brain, and when that estrogen level gets somewhere probably between 180 and 200, the brain goes, oh, you need to ovulate or release an egg. (laughs) So then the brain sends another little hormone to the ovary called LH. That's what you're watching for when you pee on those little sticks. And it sends the signal that a little tiny little hole needs to be created in that follicle, which is now big, but it's normal. So we're calling it a follicle. So it's big and it's going, your ovaries going to kind of contract and squeeze that fluid out. That's why sometimes people can have pain when they're ovulating something called middle schmerz. Okay. And then that follicle that you ovulated from goes through this really cool conformational change and becomes what's called a corpus luteum. Fancy word for a follicle that's not producing as much estrogen anymore, but is producing lots of progesterone. Okay. And then if you get pregnant and your body starts producing HCG, the HCG feeds back to the corpus luteum saying you need to keep on producing progesterone. If you don't get pregnant and you don't have that signal, the corpus luteum involutes or collapses upon itself and you have a period and your next ultrasound should be normal. So that's that's what normally happens. So Carrie, what happens if somebody ovulates and then they come in to start their cycle or they start having pain and they come in and we do an ultrasound and we're like, oh gosh, you have a cyst. I'm sorry. We can't get you started on your next cycle of tomorrow. So what is that cyst? Why is that a problem? That cyst most often is just a follicle. So a normal fluid filled sac that did not listen to instructions well. So (laughs) it was supposed to release and it was supposed to release the fluid and the egg and get picked up and have the opportunity to become a pregnancy and blah, 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 blah. And it just was like, screw you. I'm going on vacation. No, thanks. And so as a result, it continues growing beyond the point that it should. And so when we get to the point of when your next period was supposed to start and maybe didn't, or you had a little bit of bleeding, but it maybe wasn't enough to be a full period. In some cases, it is very a very normal period. But when we go and we look and we see that there's still that 
fluid-filled follicle, now turned into a cyst because it really shouldn't be there by that point. The thing that we worry about is, all right, a lot of times that sucker is still producing hormones in a method that is normal at a different point of the cycle, but it's not normal for where you are right now. And everything that we do, timing is everything. And so if you don't have the right layout of when your estrogen goes high, when your progesterone goes high, the whole thing gets screwed up. I mean, that's that's why if you give progesterone one way, it's birth control. If you give progesterone another way, it is the only thing supporting your pregnancy. Yeah. And so timing, timing <laughs> is everything here. And those cysts just screw things up. And so we don't want that to impact the success of your cycle. And we also don't want to give you more meds on top of it that are going to make it get bigger, that could make it potentially rupture or torture your ovary, which means twisting it and cutting off the blood supply, which is painful and just a bad day all around. And so we just say, okay, either ride it out for another couple of weeks and let's see what happens with your next period, or please take these birth control pills. So we're going to try and starve out from underneath it so that it'll resolve a little bit faster. Um, as always, size matters. Um, the bigger <laughs> the longer it takes to get its head straight and uh, get over itself and move on so that we can all move on with your treatment. So I just wanted to comment a little bit on when you're talking about assist rupturing or ovarian torsion. So when we're talking about assist rupturing or ovarian torsion, sometimes whenever we're on call, we get these phone calls and somebody's like, I I think my ovary might be torsing. So I'm just going to like lay this out here. If you have ovarian torsion or you have a hemorrhagic, you have a significant cyst rupture, you are not going to question whether it's a good idea to call your doctor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to maybe even call from the ER or on your way to the ER. Yeah, right, a lot of right. times you don't even call, you're already moving. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's one of those like, oh my goodness, this is a emergency. I need to call my doctor while somebody's driving me, okay? Yeah. So mm. it's like, you know, sometimes if you have a large cyst on your ovary, you may have a little uncomfortableness, a little twinge here and there. Those aren't the big things we're talking about. Uh-uh. The big things we're talking about are like, oh my goodness, this hurts like hell. <laughs> so yes. how does, Susan, how does an, since you brought up ovarian torsion, how does that, how does a large cyst contribute to ovarian torsion? So what happens is, so you're, your ovary, I always say like your ovary and your fallopian tube are kind of like your heart and your lungs. They're next to each other. They work together, but they're not the same things. Okay. And what happens is your, your tube and your ovary are kind of bound through this very fine, filmy type of tissue. And if your ovary gets big enough, generally a cyst larger than five centimeters, which that's a pretty good size, pretty big one, yeah. Pretty big size cyst that it can essentially twist in some of this filmy tissue. And as it twists, it cuts off the blood supply and causes pain like right now what we call acute pain. And Carrie, along those same lines, what's another thing that starts out as a normal physiologic cyst, then after ovulation, it turns into something bad, not a torsion, but something that has to do with bleeding. So you can have a hemorrhagic corpus luteum. So a corpus luteum is standard par for the course. You should have that after every ovulation. You want to have that. (laughs) You want to have that. That is a very good thing because it is a little hormone producing factory and it is fantastical. Um, However, if there is no pregnancy there, that thing should involute, resolve, just essentially clean itself up so that when you do your next baseline ultrasound, everything is quiet and um, and looks good so that you can start again. Well, sometimes what happens is that you get a tiny little bleeder 
that a tiny little blood vessel that at the time of the follicle rupture um, just started to bleed into that space. And so what happens is that it's still producing the hormones, but it's also growing larger and larger because it's it's got blood going into it. And so it's usually self-limited, meaning it's not like it's going to grow to the size of uh, Texas and all of a sudden you're going to have a basketball <laughs> size you know, bloody ovarian cyst in you. That does not happen. Typically what happens is it just what we consider to tamponade itself off, meaning it it gets so full that the pressure from having blood and clot in there blocks that artery so it stops bleeding. And so it just stops. It's self-limited. Self-limited. So sometimes what happens is that little sucker um, pops open. And so you end up with some bleeding into your abdomen and blood in the belly hurts. Uh, It's very, very irritating. And so like Susan was saying, this is one of those things where usually there's not a whole lot of question of what you need to do if if it's bad. Like it just doesn't go away and you are on your way to the emergency room because it is it's pretty profound um that doesn't happen very often but um that that can happen where everything started out just normal and then and then went upside down just because you had it once doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have it again um it's just can be one of those unlucky things that happens randomly so any other things we should add in about benign cysts that are pretty normal as part of the normal menstrual cycle okay okay Carrie, Carrie, pick me. Um, We're going to talk about the stupidest name in the entirety of uh, gynecological names, which oh, is yes. polycystic ovarian syndrome. Because oh, you don't yes. have cysts, you have follicles. Oh, they're not yes. cysts. They're so not can, cysts. They're not cysts. I cannot tell you how many times people come in and they say, oh, I have cysts. Okay, tell me about it. Oh, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So better name for this is polyfollicular ovarian syndrome because those are not, when we think of cysts, we think of something that's at least two, three, four centimeters or bigger. Um, It's a problem. This is not a bad, this is not a problem. (laughs) Yeah, so polycystic ovarian syndrome or polyfollicular ovarian syndrome, so hashtag make it catch on, um, (laughs) is is just when you have a ton of follicles. And so it's true that the hormonal signaling may not work super well. That's an entirely different episode. And so go back and listen to those. But um, it just means that the hormonal signaling is not necessarily working very well. It doesn't mean that you're more prone to any problems per se of the ovaries. It just means that uh, like the these are not cysts that rupture. They are not cysts that cause hemorrhagic uh, corpus luteus cysts, like any more than the the norm. Um, but it's a terrible name, and it gives women all kinds of anxiety for just a yeah. stupid reason. So there you go, off my soapbox. So I, ha- I have one more thing. When we're okay. talking about these things, like you know, you might have a little residual corpus luteum at the beginning of your cycle, or even if you have a simple cyst at the beginning of your cycle and we're like, you know, for safety reasons, we really want to wait until your next cycle or keep you on birth control pills if we're getting ready for an IVF cycle or what, whatever we're going to do. Realize that they are not bad omens. I I, I know whenever we sit, tell somebody that it's there, it's crushing, you know, it's like, oh no, there's, it's something else in our way. And it, it's just us trying to protect you because number one, safety is always number one. Baby is number two. Okay. Because no matter how much we want baby, we want you more. All right. So (laughs) safety is number one. All right. But we also get to our goal by dotting our I's and crossing our T's. We want everything to be perfect. You have these things that happen when you're not trying to get pregnant or when you're not seeing somebody like us, but nobody's putting a vaginal ultrasound in you every month to look 
for it. Okay. And some people can kind of be like, oh, I think I have a cyst. You know, they kind of a different feeling of fullness or something like that. But these things happen all the time. Okay. So it's, it's really important that not to let the occurrence of one of these types of cysts really get you down when you're in the middle of your fertility treatment. It's, it's it's a little speed bump. We're gonna we're gonna mosey right on over it, and we're gonna right. keep on driving. But just just be a little patient with us. It pays off. Very good point. All right. So now we're gonna move on to benign cysts that are not physiologic cysts, not ones as part of the menstrual cycle that happen every month. So Carrie, name a benign phys- or non physiologic cyst, one that we don't really want to be there, but it's benign. It's not cancer, in other words. So most dermoids are benign. And dermoids are, um, if anyone has ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, one of the ants comes in and she talks about having a tumor that she like swallowed her twin inside and she got a biopsy. <laughs> and I haven't seen that. Blah, 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 I all love that movie. One of my it's favorites. It's hysterical. And the third one's coming out and I kind of want to see it. Yeah, I think it's out actually. It, it came out a week ago. ago. This weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I never yeah. saw the second one. So who no, knows? It was good. Anyway. It was good. So, um, so what she's referring to is a dermoid. And the reason that it has the reputation it does is because it's full of all three cell lines um, that make up all the cells within the body. And so as a result, in your ovary, you can see things like thyroid tissue, and you can see hair, and you can see this really fatty, viscous, icky fluid, and it's got, and you can see teeth and all of these crazy different things. And so we don't really want them there while we're stimming you for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because of the pure safety component of it. If you go into dermoid and you let that sebaceous material, which is the, the fluid inside of it come out, that hurts. Like it doesn't feel good. It makes a chemical peritonitis. And so we want to get rid of that little sucker. Um, oftentimes they are bilateral or on both ovaries. Um, sometimes you can see them both at the same time. Sometimes people get one removed and then they come back several years later and and the other one has gotten big enough to see now where it wasn't really mm-hmm. seen before or it wasn't big enough to merit taking out before. Um, mm-hmm. So dermoids are, are something that we see reasonably frequently. Like it's yeah. Kind of- common among rare things, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's one of one of those things too. Sometimes if you see real small and like Carrie said, if you see it, right, eh, it's there. We'll watch it. If it gets big, maybe we'll take it out. But uh, but we don't necessarily take teeny ones out. Um, what's another one, Susan, that I actually saw today when I was doing an egg retrieval, as a matter of fact, a really big one in somebody's uh, ovary. So probably what Abby's referring to is the endometrioma. <laughs> so that's right. What, it, what an endometrioma is, is it is part of the diagnosis of endometriosis, which the endometrium is the lining of the uterus. So sometimes you can have endometrium in other places, and that is called endometriosis, okay? And a common place for us to see that is in your ovaries. So in a follicle or a cyst, you can have um, essentially old blood, kind of like what you'd get rid of with your period, but it's inside one of those follicles. Needless to say, you don't have a vagina off of your follicle (laughs) to get rid of that stuff every month. So it just kind of hangs out and collects and sometimes it stays the same and sometimes it gets bigger. And so that is something that we pay attention to. Um, We don't necessarily always rush you to the operating room the way we did Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Um, If we saw one of those on ultrasound, that is definitely something that's changed with um, practice patterns and, and, you know, the different success rates and what our treatments are and that type of thing. But that that's, 
that's a type of um, ovarian cyst that we do keep an eye on. Um, and it can be a sign of why you may be having problems conceiving. So Carrie, in the patient I did surgery on a day, the plan is to do her egg retrieval and then, then we're going to take her endometrioma out. So why, why are we waiting to take her endometrioma out? Because when you take out the endometrioma, by default, you are also going to take out normal ovarian cortex. because you Or can't- any other type of cyst. Or any other type of cysts. Um, because <laughs> for most of these, you cannot just, especially endometriomas, you can't just stick a needle in and drain it. That seems like the most intuitive, obvious thing to do. But when you do that, it comes back immediately, if not sooner. And so you haven't actually accomplished anything other than doing a procedure that generally turns out to be unnecessary. You have to take mm-hmm. the cyst wall out with it. Right. By virtue of doing that, you are going to take out some normal ovarian tissue. And so there's a real balance between do you take a cyst out before retrieval or after? After. And typically, if if the cyst is so big, you cannot see anything else, you cannot access anything else, those are the ones that tend to have to come out. But if you can work around it, then we try and do that because um, we live and die by the ovaries. And so we have to keep them as intact and healthy as possible. So we try and avoid it when we can, but that's not always possible. So when Carrie's saying that we're going to take out some normal ovarian tissue, what she's nicely saying is we're going to take out extra eggs that you're not yeah. going to get anymore. And because you're mm-hmm. born with all the eggs you're ever going to get, we don't want to remove any of those eggs that we don't have to. Correct. Any other benign cysts? I'm thinking of, there's just a random few I've seen over the years, like a mucinous cyst adenoma that was benign. Um, but those are pretty uncommon. I think probably we hit the two biggies, the dermoid and the endometriomas are really the big cysts that are kind of the bane of our existence. Mm-hmm. Anything else benign you can think of? I mean, so Carrie, the middle, the middle of the road stuff, like the borderline serious. That's what I was just about to get to. I was just about to say. So since you brought that up, Carrie, as if you're on your board, since you brought up borderline tumors, tell us about borderline tumors. So Abby is making me go through PTSD because <laughs> boards are three hours in front of really freaking smart people. Three terrifying getting, hours of your life. <laughs> yeah, and and the, the golden rule of boards is answer the question and shut the hell up. And don't um, say anything else. <laughs> don't say anything else. So for borderline tumors, um, oftentimes when people come to us, they have a history of having borderline tumors removed. Like I would say it's fairly unusual for me to diagnose them, but it's somewhat common for me to have patients who are coming to me because they've got a history of borderline. And that usually means that one ovary either has been severely operated on or is just gone completely. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's just gone, gone. And so they're trying to preserve their fertility before anything Another else bad happens that. or somebody's found a small cyst that they're worried about. And they're like, let me get all, let me get my family taken care of before we go in and take that out. And so, mm-hmm. um, borderline tumors, you know, can be very small. They could be very large. They usually don't require a ton of treatment. A lot of times surgery is enough, but, um, but that's usually a balance between your REI and your oncologist to say, all right, you you know, our our question for the Onco folks is always, if I poke this and if I open this up, how bad is this going to be? And and so we go back and forth a lot on that because it's there's risk no matter what you do. And so it's all based on what's the benefit. And there are going to be some people who say, absolutely, I don't I'll take the risk, making sure that I have biologically related children is super important. And there are other there are going to be other people who say the exact opposite. They're both fine. It's just you got to make sure that all of your doctors are in communication and everybody knows what's at stake so that when we go forward, you're making a decision for yourself. And one thing I'll say too, because I've seen this happen a couple 
couple of times. If you have a borderline tumor, you know, I've seen a few patients that are like, well, you know, they took out, and actually our oncologists tend to take out more the cyst and leave some of the ovary in, but, or if they, even if they take out the one ovary, some of our patients will be like, well, you know, we just were checking in and maybe at some point we'll want to do IVF. I've learned with borderline tumors, you got to be really careful about that because those suckers can grow really fast. And I saw a patient one time and then three or four months later, I saw her and it is like doubled in size. I mean, they're malignant or borderline malignancy and they, they have a lot of blood supply and they grow really fast. So my best piece of advice would be if you have a borderline tumor, I would get eggs frozen pretty quick or make embryos pretty quick because you just don't know how quickly they're going to grow and change. Mm -hmm. So Susan, give us another tumor that may be a little bit more leaning to the bad side. Well, I mean, there's, there's cysts that can actually be cancer. Okay, so you can have ovarian cancer and ovarian cancer most likely is going to happen after your reproductive years, but not always. Um, you know, if you have a family history of ovarian cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, even sometimes prostate cancer, you know, that those are, are all signs that you might want to choose to have some genetic testing to see if you're predisposed to having ovarian cancer. Um, ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is, is very hard. Um, to treat. And um, it, it's it's probably one of the reasons we all went into fertility and not gen oncology. And, <laughs> um, you know, when when we look for to, to lay your fears aside, the look of a cyst that is ovarian cancer looks very, very different to us. That's a really good point. Yeah. And then those hemorrhagic follicles, those endometriomas, those simple cysts, all of those things uh, we're sitting there when I say all those words, pictures are popping up in each of our brains. And when we have seen ovarian cysts that are cancer, they look very different. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I do, I, I I have to say probably about once a year, I have somebody who I do an ultrasound and I'm like, that cyst does not look good. We're going to mm-hmm. get a CT scan. I'm going to have you go see a gen oncologist. It may not be cancer. But if if it is cancer, when you have that surgery, there's there's certain things that they need to look at that are not how we were trained. You need to have somebody who's trained in that. So if you do have a cyst that looks a little fishy and your doctor wants you to go to a different type of doctor, it doesn't necessarily absolutely mean it's cancer, but it can mean that they, they want to make sure that you're getting all the right care just in case. Mm-hmm. So what you're really saying is planning is real important. So if you have a predisposition to cancer in your family and you think there's a pretty high likelihood you might have cancer, much better to go in and freeze eggs or make embryos while you're healthy now. And then, you know, depending on what you find from your um, genetic testing, you may be a candidate to have your ovaries removed to prevent you from having cancer. Because I think we would all agree once you're at that point where you truly have ovarian cancer, it's kind of out of our hands at that point. It goes to an oncologist at that point. So hopefully, um, if you plan ahead, we'll have some eggs or embryos frozen. And someday down the road when you're cured, we'll be able to, we'll be able to get you pregnant with those. Yeah. So any other things about ovarian cysts that we missed today that you guys would like to add in? Don't let them get you down. Like just, it's okay. It's okay. We see cysts. We deal with cysts all the time. Um, You know, I know they're, they're scary to you and they look huge on the ultrasound machine when you look at them. (laughs) They look absolutely ginormous. Realize that we have everything blown up. And so something that may be a centimeter could look like the size of an orange. So yes. so just um, make sure if you see something, you're concerned, 
ask questions. Ask your doctor questions. It is much better for you and your psyche for you to ask your doctor than to see something, get freaked out, and then go on Dr. Google. <laughs> Definitely agreed all the way around. And there we have medications that can help make them go away, um, particularly if they're just the benign hormonal chaos kind of cysts. And so deep breath, it'll be okay. All right. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure and subscribe and le- leave a review for us on iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Leave us a like or leave us a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All the questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.